Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon, here as ever with co-host Eric Trexler. Eric, how you doing? I am great, Rachel. It's a great day. We're recording on a Friday for the first time in a long time. I like time. it. I like it a lot. I yes. do. So, so I have to tell some. I have to announce something to our audience. Aside from our Fed, Fed uh, Top Thirty Federal Influencers Award, three years in a row. By the way, subscribe. <laughs> tell your friends, and uh, please leave us some feedback. We get so little feedback through the podcast platform. And, and the mechanisms provided. So leave us some feedback. Only good feedback. If you have bad feedback, put it on a cooking show or something. But uh, Rachel, you're an actress. <laughs> Rachel, if we go yes. to Rachel Lyon, no S, Lyon, L-Y-O-N, Rachel Lyon on IMDb, we can look up your profile. Yes, And yes. you are a, a SAG card-carrying actress. Card-carrying SAG, yes, yes. I couldn't have I done the show soaps. with you had I known that a long time ago. I would have been too nervous. It would have been a oh, mess. Oh, no, no. Well, I mean, it's, you know, you could you could probably get your SAG card too. I mean, I'll, uh, this many podcasts, surely you qualify. Yeah, I don't think it's video though. So what were you on? Uh, well, I did some soaps. So Days of Our Lives, As the World Turns. I met Susan Lucci. She was fantastic. It was an episode where she went off to Las Vegas and she was uh, pretending to be this person called Desiree. It was a lot of fun. It was a uh, Las Vegas casino. Fabulous. And now you're on To The Point Cybersecurity. Now I'm it. on To The Point Security Podcast, baby. <laughs> okay, so I'm, uh, I, you don't have to call me baby. It's okay. This is a professional show. So I'm going to lead us into our, our, our excellent, amazing Love guest it. who's been doing yes. this longer than all of us um, today by saying, you know, we have a guest from Sentinel One. My wife works at Sentinel One, as some people may know. And she was nominated, which you shared with me, for the CyberScoop 50 recently. So she's a nomination. And she was put in as most inspiring up-and-comer. And my wife, nice. you know, I'm looking for some credit here. I'm like, hey, this is amazing, Patty. She goes, I'm 53. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this. I'm not a young leader anymore. I'm like, look, you look young. It's Everybody's going to love it. You look great. So uh, I, I thought that was very funny since we were on the topic of Sentinel One today. But who do we have today from Sentinel One? Well, we have... Juan Andres. Ah. Wait a minute. Last name? <laughs> you can do it. We're almost there. Uh, Guerrero Sad. All right. Close <laughs> enough. Juan, can you, can you help us there, Juan? Yeah. Can, and then can we'll you finish the intro. <laughs> so it's Juan Andres Guerrero Sad. And it's awesome. so complicated that most of the people I know in the industry have just decided to go by Jags because somehow that's initials are better at this point. Jags it is. So tell us about Jags, Rachel. Well, Jags, which is like the coolest name ever, by the way, is a principal th threat researcher at Sentinel One. He's also an adjunct professor of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Uh, he's worked as a senior cybersecurity and national security advisor to the government of Ecuador. And his joint work on Moonlight Maze is now featured in the International Spy Museum's permanent exhibit in Washington, D.C. Wow. So, Jags, you're in the Spy Museum. 
Uh, yeah. So uh, me and uh, Thomas Ridd, a couple other folks, uh, we're actually holograms in the spy museum somehow. Just trying awesome. to explain like code similarity How and all this cool. attribution stuff. It's they did a great job. It's very cool. Rachel, I was working with a coworker years ago, and uh, there's there's a, there's a cyber uh, infosec guy out there called Jester. Why are you mm-hmm. with me, Jags? Yeah. yeah so yeah. he had to transport Jester's laptop to the spy museum because it was so like nobody knows who he is. It's 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 fascinating. Wow. Yeah. So his is Wait, there too. So it's a big thing. I follow that guy thing. on Twitter. I follow yeah, him on great Twitter. Content. That's hilarious that you just said that. Yeah. J E S T E R. But it's a yes. big thing to be in the spy museum, and they just redid it in DC. Oh. It is awesome. Yeah. So Jags, I mean, if you quite haven't a, visited the new the new building is is fantastic. It's nice. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I admittedly, I had to look up Moonlight Maze. I, I'm embarrassed to say, but I, I, I thought it was like 1996, first widely known cyber espionage campaign in world history. The value of the information stolen, uh, I guess, according to congressional testimony, was ten, in the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And if you were to print out and stack all of the information that had been taken, um, that paper stack will be three times the height of the Washington Monument. So this is a big deal. And nowhere close to OPM or Sunburst or the like, but go on. <laughs> right, right. I mean, well, it, it's a different era, right? The internet yeah. of the 90s is a, a very different landscape. Right, but let's go back to the Cold War of the 80s. I mean, what would it take a, let's just pick on an American spy to carry that type of content out of Russia? Like okay. how many, how many, what was it, Rachel? Um, you mean the, the, the height of the stack of paper. Oh, sorry. It was uh, three times the height of Washington monument and the Washington monument is 555 feet tall. Okay. So we're talking almost 1800 feet of paper, eight and a half and 11, I'm assuming stacked up. I mean, think about how long it would take a spy organization to walk that out of a building. That's a lot of content. You might yes. have a similar example. I think the closest thing would have been uh, the Mitrohin archive, which one of the, it, it's an interesting story, totally unrelated to this, but the, one of the guys that worked at the KGB archives was taking notes of everything that he was transcribing and saved it all for 20 years until they finally oh. got him out of Russia. A really, uh, wow. Very interesting. But yeah, there's no corollary as far as cyber goes. You know, the amount of information that you can steal mm-hmm. in one go is um, just a click of a button. Yeah. And well, yeah. In, in the 90s, it was a little more involved. Uh, it was really interesting to go kind of anachronistically in the research, right? Like we work on all mm-hmm. these APTs, all these hyper espionage campaigns, all this recent stuff. And you get used to a certain level of automation. You get used right. to all the facility that comes with the modern Internet. And then you're looking at an operation that's, you know, evolving from its infancy in the late 90s and it looked very different you're talking about hands-on keyboard there's no command and control servers sort of orchestrating the whole thing uh they're trying to code their way through this you see broken tools getting deployed all the time then sort of trying to grow as they go along so it's like watching the birth of a threat actor right yeah yeah and and i bet most of our listeners have no idea what moonlight maze was they weren't in they weren't in infosec at the time and I'm betting a good percentage of our listeners may not have even been alive at the time. I mean, it's like 9-11 or how long we've been in Afghanistan. I mean, you go back and it's it's a generation at least at this point, right? Wow. Right. I mean, with, with your Fed Award, I think you might actually have a, a good amount of the people that dealt with, with Moonlight Maze from the Air Force and NSA and whatnot. But uh, for the most part, it is it is sort of a forgotten phase of 
cyber war. The beginning, quote unquote, yeah. Right? So if, if anybody wants to understand the time period, and, and Jags, I don't know if you've ever read the book, but there's a book, The Cuckoo's Egg by uh, oh, absolutely. Clifford Stoll, DOE, a DOE IT person, essentially. I think I've talked about it on the show, but it, it, it just takes you back to, I think The Cuckoo's Egg was the late 80s, early 90s, mm-hmm. like when yeah. Clifford wrote the book. Uh, I don't even know what he's doing. He might be retired at this point, but yes, yeah. So I mean, but it'll give you some framework for the time, which is very different than now. These type of attacks were, I mean, massive and not expected. Like they're almost expected every month at this point. We're recording the week that I mean, I don't even know what T-Mobile lost. Rachel was like fifty million personnel records or something around that. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Who cares? Nobody even cares anymore. I mean, like nobody cares. I'm a T-Mobile customer and I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. What are you going to do? Right. So, (laughs) so can can you put us in that time frame? Like most of our listeners, I don't think will know what this was, but can you like put us in the time frame? Obviously you were a little younger back then. The world was different. The, you know, Infosec, IT, you name it. I mean, there wasn't really much of cybersecurity out of NSA and and, and a couple of companies, right? Yeah, it, it's a really interesting landscape. So there, there's two ways to approach this uh, that that are kind of foreign to most of us. Um, one of them is the state of the internet at the time, right? You're talking mm-hmm. about mostly university research centers, military computers, right. that kind of stuff, and then you know some early adopters trying to get into the scene. Uh, but it's not at all uh, like what the internet looks like now in its proliferation and its number of users, nor in its uses, right? For the most part, you're storing uh, research and, and databases and government stuff. Um, so in, in itself, it's a very different uh, target environment. Um, and from the espionage side, from the cyber espionage side, it, it is entirely undeveloped. I mean, we have rumors of you know, maybe early Israeli operations. We believe the NSA was already operating at that time. Um, I like to call it the League of Titans, right? Like we've got the folks that were doing Moonlight Maze, uh, which has a connection to a, a modern threat actor called Turla. Um, yeah. And then you've got the folks from the Equation Group, which, you know, we've come to know as, as some function uh, within NSA uh, that were also around in 1995, around there. So you basically have a drastically underpopulated threat actor uh, menagerie, right? You don't have and your when, pandas. When did yet. this start? Like what year, really? I well, mean, I know '98 uh, is like the big '98, '99 is the big year, right? Like Wikipedia said '96, but I don't know if that's accurate. But. Yeah. So Moonlight May starts somewhere in in '96, as far as as we can okay. tell. So Windows '95 is out. Most people are still on Windows 3.1, maybe. We're talking like NT4.0 and 3.3.5. I mean, most of our users haven't heard of this stuff or listeners. So that was our initial assumption. It gets more obscure, right? So okay. the, our ability to do this research, I kind of have to tell a bit of the backstory, comes mostly from the doggedness of Thomas Ridd, who is another, you know, he is a, a full-time professor over at, at SAIS and, and a brilliant researcher, a fantastic author. And he and I talked years back and he was very much focused on this idea of, you know, what the hell happened with Moonlight Maze? Why have we never seen anything uh, technical come out about Moonlight Maze? Um, and he started, you know, filing FOIA requests and trying to follow up with everybody involved and, and just kept pressing and pressing and pressing um, until he found a, uh, a bit of a redaction error 
one of the documents basically, um, I believe, redacted the name of a company that had been compromised, but didn't redact the name of the person managing it. It's, it's one of those two. It's either the uh, company or the right. person person's name. And uh, Thomas was able to contact this man, uh, an older gentleman called David Hedges, super nice guy. Um, who had been managing this system for a UK company that got compromised and was being used to route part of the attack to the United States. Um, And as luck would have it, uh, he had the the machine. He still had the machine under his desk. So it was basically, you know, his, his, his willingness to kind of hold on to all this stuff um, allowed us to do all this research. He had been asked by the FBI at the time whether he would be willing to kind of let the hack continue and essentially watch everything that went through there. Mm-hmm. And he did, but he also didn't get rid of any of it afterwards. So, you know, once and we nobody established thought to trust, ask him. Well, <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, the FBI didn't, didn't do their homework on that one because um, one of the tragic Oops. things of this is the there's a notice that Thomas uncovered first that says, you know, as part of standard procedures, we have destroyed, after a certain amount of time, we've destroyed all of the evidence that we had collected. So we kind of, it was a gut punch for us in the early days of our research because we were like, okay, we're just, you know, unless you're in the NSA or GCHQ, we're not going to get anything. Um, And then, you know, Thomas stumbles upon David, who was just sitting on this treasure trove of of fossils that we could, you know, essentially reconstruct a, a good portion of the attack. Um, and when were you doing this, the um, reconstruction piece? So I'm, I'm going to have to think back. I'm a, all, all of time has sort of blended into one giant everyday. Uh, but I believe we were doing the research around 2016, 2017. I, I might actually okay. have to Google okay. it myself. <laughs> yeah. No worries. But this is, I mean, this is all happening after the wall fell. Five oh, years yeah. after the Cold War ended, Right. It's still yeah. underway, and and I, I I suspect Jags that most people in government weren't weren't thinking about cybersecurity back then. We've got to protect this. Inf- people can walk mm-hmm. through our our walls and just get in here from keyboard strokes. Yeah, it was a it was a rude awakening on a variety of levels. Well, for one, it essentially kicks off establishing things like JTF and other functions within the U.S. government to respond to this. Like this is kind of the big wake up call. It also, because someone eventually decides to brief Congress, of course, it leaks and it becomes the, you know, the the first rally cry, uh, including, I believe, a Newsweek article that said, you know, we are in a cyber war. It was like the beginning of that, uh, that kind of cyber Pearl Harbor hyperbole style of, of, you know, taking on these things. Uh, but it's also a really interesting time. I mean, you you mentioned Cliff Stoll and, and what Cliff was on to. And he's kind of like the patron saint of threat hunters because he was, you know, it's the late 80s, I believe, or early 90s. And more than anything, he doesn't have any of the tools available that we're used to. You don't you're not talking about firewall right. logs or SIMs or AV or EDR. Nothing. Well, and if you read the book, he's got like CIA involved, but they really don't care or aren't doing anything. They're not sharing with him. He's a government employee. He's yeah. at Department of Energy. Was he at Lawrence Livermore, I think? Uh, I think in Berkeley. So, yeah. He, he yeah. was in that area and, and he had nowhere to go, but he's watching this behavior. It's never explained. It's, it, I mean, that was a pretty good pull, I have to admit, but uh, it's, it's a decent read. It's a little detailed, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's a different time. Yeah. It's really interesting. I mean, for, for folks who have not been exposed to it or even for big fans of, of the Cuckoo's Egg, I would actually point you to a more recent talk. 
Um, since uh, CTI in 2015, 2016, sorry, my cat's waking up. Um, 2015, 2016, uh, Cliff Stoll came back and he did a keynote talk for this conference. And I, okay. I, I had the pleasure of being in the crowd. He's an incredibly animated uh, speaker to the point where he was jumping around. He basically disconnected the uh, the projector, uh, but Can he shows you imagine up. him back then when he can't get anybody to listen oh, to the fact that there's crazy. people inside energy, <laughs> the oh. amount of energy this man paid. has, you know, at his okay. age, which is fantastic. And he literally showed up with the same slides, like the old timey projector slides yeah. that he used to explain to NSA oh, wow. what was happening. And he just like pulled the them flip back chart out and kind projector of slides. It. Yeah. It was like, it was, I don't even know what you call them, but yeah, it, it was fantastic. Um, what was that and, called, and, Rachel? The, the the overhead projectors. Remember, you would put the uh, the film based slides ah, down. Yes, and you could yes. write on yeah. them with with the right markers. He still has them. We I don't know where they sourced this projector for him, but uh, so I, I would point to that <laughs> as a, as a must see. It's probably like the best keynote talk I've ever seen. Um, and where is it again? It was Sans. Sans CTI in DC. I can't remember the year, but if you look for Sans CTI and Cliff Stoll and on Cliff YouTube, Stoll, you're gonna, you're boom. Okay, we'll link it. to that if we can find it. So yeah. back to Moonlight Maze. You're doing all this work. You hit the mother load. Yeah. So some something. What do you to, feel? Where do you go from there? Yeah. Well, so to close off the thing with Cliff, right? The reason I brought it up is what we didn't understand at the time is he was seeing these German hackers who were stealing American documents to sell them to the KGB for some combination of, you know, drugs and money. And right. at the time, we just were not really cognizant that this could happen. Right. With Moonlight Maze, I think it comes at a time when the U.S. is already in a very covert fashion taking on that same activity. And someone in, the U in, in Russia figures out, you know, why not go for this ourselves? Yeah. So what we see, I mean, you, you asked, you know, what do we feel at the time? The idea of getting our hands on this material was if there is such a thing as a miracle in Threat Intel, I think this is it, right? Um, yeah. We found more detailed information um, for that incident than we usually get for most modern investigations. I mean, you had on keyboard logs, um, all kinds of tools. You could see how they were deploying things through different victims. Uh, Danny Moore, who worked with us on this, um, he's over at Facebook now. He... Uh, he actually was able to reconstruct this whole cloud of, you know, all the IPs connecting to each other and figuring out wow. sort of how they were routing themselves through these different systems. Um, and Kostin Ryu and I uh, spent our time reversing the, you know, reverse engineering the different samples. Uh, I told you that it was a little more obscure than Windows NT and whatnot because these were actually uh, Spark stations, Solaris systems, IRIC wow. systems from back in the day. Um, SGI. So oh, I, can was, hang, I can hang, Rachel. You see? Uh, I, well, I'll tell you what. When so, so I was seven years old when this stuff was being coded. It was entirely new assembly. Seven. <laughs> see, I got you beat in this one. So yeah. how do you take Solaris, like, what, what is that? Back then, it's probably Solaris 7 or Solaris 8. How do you take IRIX and, and actually even do anything with it? Well, I mean, thankfully, Ida Pro will will battle anything you throw at it. But okay. I think the the bigger issue was that's a tool you're own. using for reverse engineering, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean that right. that's sort of the the tool. You know, until Ghidra came out, it was the tool, and I think that it still is. 
but essentially, the harder issue was not disassembling these things, but rather that, I mean, I was entirely foreign to this type of assembly. Like, I had to sit down and basically learn a whole new right. uh, form of assembly to to understand these different binaries and try to figure out what the hell it is that they're doing. And thankfully, I had Kosen Rai, who's always been a, a mentor, and he's, he's much more experienced in, in that um, in these sorts of things to, to, to help guide me, but we had a ton of stuff to reverse. So it took us at least six months just to deal with the samples and figure wow. out how that toolkit was being iteratively developed, what it was that they were trying to do, you know, what was going on. Um, and I think the greatest finding of the whole Moonlight Mace uh, parallel construction that we got to do was realizing that these guys who, for all intents and purposes, were skiddies. They were script kiddies at the time, and they were just, you know, kind of testing out different tools and, and what they could get their hands on. Um, they eventually start to kind of catch their stride and develop, mm -hmm. you know, one set of tools that really worked for them and, and you know, develop it better and get closer mm -hmm. to what we now would think of as a malware family. Um, and the interesting thing was they, they built on top of a publicly available uh, backdoor called Loki 2. And we saw them start to, you know, iterate on that, strip aspects of it, improve on certain aspects of it, build, 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 build. And then our visibility ends. There's a, you know, there's a period when, when this leaks out of Congress and the Newsweek story comes out, they freak out and burn all of their infrastructure, wow. including the server that we've gotten access to. So at that point, we kind of okay, get caught Okay, so they off. reach into the server, which is in somebody's house? It was in a company in the UK. It was like an okay, HR company in the UK. Right. Okay. So they're, it's, it's part of their infrastructure though. And they basically burn yeah. it all down. They burned everything. They stopped and using they all being, of that. And they we think the Russians. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, for all intents and purposes. I mean, we, we had uh, these connections going back to like CityLine, which was like a Russian ISP at the time. Like everything yeah, pointed, okay. you know, they, they tried using proxies. That's what this company in the UK was, right? They hacked right. this company and used it to route themselves so that, the attacks would look like they were coming from the UK rather than Russia, mm -hmm. but eventually that mask kind of falls apart, right? Um, where it gets interesting is that that tool that we were watching get developed doesn't disappear. As a testament to uh, sort of the compatibility of POSIX systems and Linux and, you know, still kind of working on the same elements, it looks like they continued to use that same source code up to now. Well, why it, would you, you know, recreate it if you don't need to? Right. Well, it, yeah. It, but again, I mean, that was, it, 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 I was in disbelief to consider that you could have a malware family work 20 years later and in Windows, it would be impossible. But in Linux, you know, they took the same source code that they had continued to develop over the years for these, you know, Solaris systems and recompiled it for Linux eventually. And we had already seen it. We just didn't know what it was. We didn't know how to connect it. It's something that uh, researchers at Kaspersky had discovered around 2015 called Penguin Turla. And you might know Turla. Turla is a really well-known uh, cyber espionage actor, Russian actor. They've been behind a lot of very notable attacks, including, you know, uh, DOD systems, military yeah, systems. Yeah, a lot of government. Yeah. A lot of governments. I mean, they are very much an old school proper espionage organization. You know, you've got, you've got sort of the, the, the bears that, you know, come around like bulls in a China shop, like Sofa C, APT 28, Fancy Bear, whatever you want to call them. And then you've got the kind of the pros that are actually just stealthily watching embassies, watching, you know, different, uh, uh, 
ministries of state and so on. Uh, that sense a little respect there. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I my blog's named after them. Like, I, I, I love yeah. these guys. They, they do, you know, they just do fascinating work. Um, but they use something called Penquinterla around 2015, and they continue to use it sparingly over the years. Uh, and what we figured out was when they were having a hard time with an intrusion, whenever somebody was starting to clean them out of a network, they would grab like a Linux server somewhere on that enterprise and hide this little backdoor. And they would get cleaned out and they would wait three months or whatever. And then they would just come right back in through that Linux back door that most folks didn't catch. And mm-hmm. they would just repopulate. Um, that Linux back door was compiled from the same source code that we were seeing wow. develop from Moonlight Maze. So you have this perfect connection of 20 some years from Moonlight Maze to the modern Turla that we continue to deal with, which is just mind blowing. So Jags, I'm going to ask you a question because if, if you look at like, uh, Mac OS. It comes from Next OS, which is a you know comes from Unix, mm-hmm. right? If you look at Windows, what are we up to now? Windows eleven, I think. Well, I mean, soon, I, I can soon still to be see. 11, right? Okay, so I, I can still see in Windows ten, which I don't do a lot of remnants of DOS in early Windows ninety five and and Windows three one, and you know the operating systems that we work with mm-hmm. still go back 20, 30 plus years. In the case of Unix, we're talking, I mean, what are we talking? We're probably talking close to, what, 50, 60 years now. I think Unix was late 60s, if I had to take a guess. So it works. The code still works. Mm-hmm. I it, it, I don't know. I mean, you don't hear about this often, but why right. wouldn't you just keep using it if it works? If nobody right. shuts well, you down, why not keep using it? We do it on the operating system. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's kind of fascinating. I, I say that this is more possible in Linux where, you know, POSIX standards are, are much more important and, you know, folks are continuing to maintain the same, you know, OpenSSL has been around for a billion years and you just yeah. kind of iterate on it, which is why it's mm-hmm. a freaking mess, but, you know, it, it continues to work. Um, you couldn't do that on Windows. I mean, Windows has a lot of things that continue to look like their old versions, but if I took malware from the early 2000s and tried to run it on like Windows 10, chances are it's just going to crap out. Right. Like the, the, okay. the DLLs okay. aren't going to work the same way. The services don't work the same way. The no, but when I go to ed- way, edit right? the registry, it's like back in the day when I was an MCSE on Windows NT 351. Right. I mean, it's it's still the registry, right? Terminal, yeah. command the structure prompt. I still mean, there. there's a lot. Right. I've, I've got Mac OS books, Unix books downstairs that still work, surprisingly yeah. or not, because I forgot yeah. everything. You can still yeah. run VI. I, I forgot it all, Rachel. I forgot it all. But Well, let, let me give this you- This is fascinating. Um, <laughs> Well, another version of that, right, uh, speaking more to the security industry and the way that it's evolved over the past, you know, 10, 15 years, there's been a lot more of a cat and mouse game in on Windows, right? You know, yeah. viruses uh, were a thing that became, there was a greater consciousness about viruses on Windows. And then mm-hmm. the antivirus industry started to evolve, you know, from the, the great figures that we've known from back in the day, whether, you know, Eugene Kaspersky was there and the folks from... Uh, from McAfee, you know, I won't say that John kind of rest in peace, you know, that as a figure, he didn't sort of uh, withstand the test of time. But we had these sort of like luminaries that started the AV industry. And it was all about kind of, you know, a new virus has come out and all these different folks around the world are doing their best to kind of best it. And that evolves into the industry that we know now where you have hundreds of thousands of unique samples coming in all the time. And, and we've tried to develop more automated systems to deal with them. 
all of that is largely rooted in the Windows battlefield. And right. Linux and Mac OS have kind of flown under the radar, not because there aren't threats for either of them, but rather from a lack of visibility, from a lack of adoption, honestly, some snobbery on the part of Linux administrators who seem to think that, you know, these things can't affect them, even though it, it's quite clear that they do. Mm. Um, so in a sense, the evolution of security tooling under the hood of Windows is um, it's been battle tested and it's been sort of this uh, natural evolution that's happened between right. Predator and Prey, whereas I think Linux uh, is really lagging behind in that sense. They adopt security measures just out of like, you know, they want You're to. You're saying on the and, defensive know. side, the white hat mm -hmm. side, but really the bad guys, the adversary, they're. They don't care. They'll pick whatever platform works for them, right? I mean, whichever they have to, right? Like if I if I know that I want to target you and you've got an iPhone, then, you know, we know what the stakes are now, right? I'm going to go to NSO, I'm going to pay them, you know, a million dollars and boom, well, you know, we've got Eric. Um, I'm not going to spend all my time trying to figure out Windows malware if you don't use it, right? Right. Yeah. Now, I've been in the industry 20 years and it's like, well, Linux doesn't have a big enough footprint. There's not enough, you know, the, the addressable market's too small. We're not going to have a Linux client capability. It's like, well, wait a minute here. <laughs> Every server <laughs> that's on like leaving and, That's yeah. like leaving two windows in a house open, but everything else is totally bolted down. Mm -hmm. I mean, come on. Well, it's I've always heard ridiculous. that there's like an 18% number, which is where you know, a lot of the adversaries look. For, for mass attacks, right? When, when a platform, whatever it may be, great, goes above like 18%, I'm sure that number changes. Um, it becomes attractive from a monetization mm -hmm. perspective. That's not nation state. That's like, you know, hacktivists, people out there for money. It's a, it's a very outdated way of thinking about things, right? Like every server and, and cloud system on earth essentially is built on Linux in some form or another. Um, and, and the idea of monetization has changed drastically, right? Like what has fueled the ransomware epidemic, uh, but yeah. the ability to, to exchange value through cryptocurrency and you can mine cryptocurrency. The only reason that you shouldn't mine cryptocurrency at home is that it's inefficient because you don't want to pay yeah. the light bill. But if I can deploy crypto miners to a bunch of AWS instances, then, you know, what do I care? Right. Uh, so there's definitely a whole side of that that we're ignoring. And that's the large scale. On the smallest scale, it's like, well, my router runs Linux and there's these Mirai botnets that at, at times have taken down entire swaths of the internet uh, because of the lack of security on those things. So yeah, we, we treat them Good like point. edge cases, but it's kind of ridiculous because it, it I, I supports agree. our whole infrastructure. Right. right. But from corporate America's perspective, it's hard to monetize in many cases because there just aren't as many nodes out there, if you will, systems. Yeah. I mean, I think I think some folks are kind of getting ahead of that. I think it, I would also expect or hope that customers get a little more savvy in, in what they ask of their vendors. Like I try to kind of egg customers on to be like, you know, ask for this, ask for something better. Um, look at the DNC. I mean, it's such a contentious issue to talk about what happened in the summer of Sophocy 2016. But the DNC, if you read the CrowdStrike report carefully, um, they realize that APT28 is there, or Fancy Bear, or whatever, SAR team, whatever you want to call them, they have a million names. Uh, they realize APT28 is there and they clean all the Windows machines. They don't realize that there's an X-Agent sample on a Linux machine mm. and they repopulate exactly the same way that we were talking about with Turla. And, you know, it's not, let's not knock CrowdStrike in particular. I think most folks in the industry just 
aren't paying attention to Linux the same way that they should. And it's yeah. it's situations like that where you see the chink in the armor where it's like just one machine sitting there is enough to, you know, keep that beachhead going, keep that infection going for, for way longer. And then we see the effects that that has uh, sort of in, in horrible ways, right? Yeah, you can be 99% perfect. But yeah. that 1%, that one machine, I mean, you have to have perfection in many cases. Okay, so you're doing Moonlight Maze. You've done the research. Where does it end up? Well, like, how do you uh, end the story? Because so we have we, another amazing story coming. I know. Yeah. Well, there's there's quite a few. I mean, I've, I've had a, a I've had a very I've had the privilege to work on a lot of interesting cases in my career, and, and we, you know we can talk about them for as long as you want. Uh, Moonlight Maze. I was really happy to see how it ended up. I mean, I got to. First of all, I'll go on stage at SAS, which was, you know, one of my favorite conferences and with, you know, my friends, my, my uh, co-researchers at the time, Thomas Ridd, Danny Moore and, and Kosen Ryu. We got on stage there together, had a drink together over the machine and got to tell the story. Uh, but better yet, you know, the, the Spy Museum, as they were doing this sort of redesign and, and they got that brand new building, amazing yeah. uh, site in D.C., uh, they dedicated a whole section to you know, cyber espionage and cyber war, sort of the development of things uh, in the cyber domain. And apart from giving us an opportunity to explain some difficult concepts as, you know, wonky holograms, uh, they actually took the server. Uh, David Hedges was kind enough to ship them the original command and control wow. server from Moonlight Maze. And, you know, it, it's up there in the exhibit. So if folks ever get to escape COVID madness, it, you know, I, I definitely recommend you go see this machine that fueled awesome. a thousand hacks, right? Awesome. That is amazing. I know. Where do you go from there? I mean, gosh. <laughs> I think we go to trains, trains and planes and automobiles, well, but let's go to trains, Rachel. Wow. What a great story, Eric. I, I think with that, let's, let's call it the end of part one and uh, bring people back next week for part two. But I don't want to wait a week. And, and the inside story, Rachel, is we don't get the raw copy. So we have to wait to hear the second part also. I know. I know. I hate it, but this is, that's what makes it so much fun. How often do you wait for anything anymore? I just binge watch like 11 seasons of the X-Files. Oh, I get so <laughs> angry when they, when they drip them out week by week. I, I, Ted Lasso right now is killing me. It's excruciating. Excruciating. Okay. So, so Jags part two next week. Jags part two next week. Yes. So Can't you wait. don't want to miss it. Yeah, exactly. And if you Tuesday. subscribe, you get it direct in your email box. That's right. On Tuesday. Talk to you then. All right. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 